hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. We can have the future we want, but we have to work for it. You're listening to Soonish. I'm Wade Roush. So, we did it. We voted. We lived through four days after the election when it seemed like the vote counting would go on forever. And then, just before noon on Saturday, November 7th, the major news organizations called the presidential race for Joseph R. Biden. I was in an Uber in stop-and-go traffic on Massachusetts Avenue in Cambridge just after the announcement. And there were drivers honking their horns and people dancing on street corners, ringing cowbells, and generally whooping it up. Later, we all saw the videos of church bells ringing in Paris and crowds erupting in joy in cities around the world. Being a big science fiction nerd, I couldn't help thinking back to those scenes in the special edition of Return of the Jedi, where the second Death Star has just been destroyed, and it seems that the Emperor himself is dead, and we see people rioting and toppling statues and setting off fireworks on planets across the galaxy to celebrate their new freedom. So yeah, that Saturday was a day to feel relieved and to soak up some good news for a change. At least if you were one of the 78 million people who voted for Joe Biden. But in the week since then, it's been a little harder to know how to feel. For one thing, there's the reality that almost 73 million people voted for Donald Trump. That wasn't enough to give him a shot at winning the Electoral College. But it was enough to prove that Americans are still deeply divided on almost every issue, from racial justice to climate to immigration to the role of government in battling the coronavirus pandemic. There was also the reality that this wasn't the blue wave election that the pollsters predicted. Democrats lost seats in the House of Representatives, and now they face an uphill battle in the Senate where the two runoff elections in Georgia will determine the balance of power. And on top of all that, we've been watching Trump mount a final act of defiance and denial that would be comical if it weren't so dangerous. Trump has been saying since 2016 that the only elections he respects are the ones where he wins. And throughout 2020, a pandemic year when we knew going in that millions of people would vote by mail or vote early, he's been making the ludicrous argument that only the votes cast in person on election day should count. So his refusal to concede may be ridiculous and contemptible, but it isn't exactly surprising. So far, very few Republican officials have dared to pop Trump's bubble and recognize Biden's win. But the reality is that all the lawsuits alleging voting irregularities will fizzle out, and the Trump administration will face mounting pressure, even from inside the party, to let the transition to the Biden administration move ahead. Trump does have one final gambit available before the Electoral College votes on December 14th. That would be to try to persuade Republican legislatures in three or four states where Biden won the popular vote to appoint Trump electors instead. That's one of the nightmare scenarios I warned about in Season 4, Episode 2, back in June. But honestly, I don't think Trump has the moxie or the execution skills to try it. The courts would block such a move, and Biden supporters would rise up in mass numbers to protest. So, come January 20th, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will be inaugurated as the President and Vice President of the United States. But even then, we won't be out of the woods. It's more like we'll finally be looking at the compass of science and reason to figure out which way is out. Biden faces a pandemic that's spreading faster than ever, an economy that's shrunk by millions of jobs, 
a fragile Democratic coalition with a very fired up left wing and possibly a hostile and uncooperative Senate. And then there's Trump himself. Remember how we found out in Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, that the emperor was never really dead? Well, there's nothing to stop Trump from hunting us for the next four years, keeping his vice grip on the Republican base and running again in 2024. All of which is to say, I'm celebrating Biden's win, but I'm not feeling super optimistic about what's coming. I knew there would be one person who understands exactly how I feel. That's my favorite futurist, Jamey Cascio, who lives in California and does foresight thinking and scenario planning work for clients like the Institute for the Future. So I called up Jamey to talk it all through, and I found out that if anything, he's feeling even more worried than I am. That's sort of his brand in the futurism business. As we learned in Season 4, Episode 1, when we talked about Germain's BANI framework for understanding our present moment. As you might remember, BANI stands for Brittle, Anxious, Nonlinear, and Incomprehensible. So I guess it shouldn't have been a surprise that, at times, it felt like I was trying to get Germain to see the bright side. Anyway, I'm going to play our conversation for you, because it offers a nice look at the challenges in front of us. And just to frame this for you, Germain and I were talking on Friday night, November 6th, about 18 hours before the major news organizations finally called the race for Biden. At that point, it looked like Trump had about 68 million votes to Biden's 73 million. Uh, so. Oh, man. How are you doing? How are you holding up? Uh, I'm doing better than I was a couple days ago. But at the same time, I have no illusions about what's really just happened. Assuming that there's no electoral college shenanigans, I know that Don Jr. was calling for Republican legislatures to toss out Democratic electoral votes and just do Republicans, but that seems unlikely. At this point, it seems like the Republican establishment has has seen the writing on the wall. But even so, this is a stop digging election. So you know the old the old aphorism: if you're in a hole, stop digging. Well. For the next couple of years, that's about what we're going to get. We're going to stop digging. Uh, but as long as McConnell's in charge of the Senate, we're not going to see anything really substantive in terms of uh, major new policies. We're going to dig into all that. Okay. <laughs> just to start by setting the scene, you and I are speaking, Jamey, at just past five o'clock Eastern time on Friday, the 6th of November. At this moment, it looks like Donald Trump will not be able to overcome Joe Biden's lead in states like Pennsylvania and Nevada and Arizona, but those states have not been called yet. So if there's a headline right now, it's that Biden's in the lead, and it looks like he'll be the next president of the United States. But we're not quite there yet to make this conversation easier. Let's go on the assumption that nothing drastic is going to change in the next hour or 10 hours or 24 hours. It does feel like we have successfully averted one possible future, right? The future where Donald Trump gets another four years in the White House to use the bully pulpit to stoke hatred and division and ignorance and to tear down democracy. And so for anyone who wants to see a future where we do start to come to grips with some of our most pressing problems, that's got to count for something, right? One hopes. Um, It's necessary, but not sufficient. And I think the as much as we talk about the bully pulpit as being an aspect of uh, holding the White House, I don't imagine that uh, Donald J is going to be uh, going to be quiet on Twitter or Facebook 
or his myriad other platforms. In fact, without the, the responsibilities of being a president, he has plenty of time to just speak as much as he wants to a much larger audience than he had back in 2015, 2016. You're right, though, that, that in order to get things done that we need to get done for a, uh, a better future than the trajectory we've been on, this was, this was necessary. I hope that within a few years we can get to a position where the tools are in place to actually make positive action and not simply, you know, as the aphorism goes, stop digging. Yeah, I felt like we had to start out in an optimistic place, right? All right. Um. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's just not me. <laughs> because Well, we're going to get to plenty of the dark stuff. And to get right to it, I mean, the troubling news, one of the pieces of troubling news is that there was no blue wave. Democrats are going to keep control of uh, the House, but they're going to they're not going to gain control of the Senate, it looks like, although that seems like it'll be up in the air for a little longer, depending on the outcome of those new uh, runoff elections in Georgia and things like that. But, you know, it seems likely that Mitch McConnell will hold on to power in the Senate during the last six years of the Obama administration, basically. This that's the that's the stalemate we had. So do you see any reason to believe that Mitch McConnell won't behave just the same way he did under Obama and try to block most of Biden's agenda. He has absolutely no incentive to do anything different. Uh, the only caveat I would add is that the 2022 senatorial uh, races, again, look to be somewhat preferential towards Democrats. You know, Democrats should have a relatively good year. So there is a non-zero chance that a recalcitrant Senate could be seen as too much of an impediment. And you start actually seeing people deciding to vote for Dem Democrats in 2022 simply to get things moving again. So that's a consideration that McConnell will have. But by and large, he's demonstrated no no willingness to do anything other than be a big lump in the road. Uh, and he enjoys that position. He, he is the most powerful person in Washington right now. And he knows it. Yeah. And well, and there's an even bigger story here, really, which is that while Biden got more votes in this election than any Democrat in a long time, and while his majority is going to be larger than the one that Hillary Clinton won in 2016, there's still this brutal truth, you know, that after four years of Trump's lies and racism and cruelty and grift and almost a quarter of a million deaths in the pandemic... He still got almost 70 million votes. <laughs> right. 68 million. Okay. So what do you, yeah. Yeah. 68 million plus people in the United States saying last four years, give me more. That's disgusting. Frankly, you'll be completely blunt about it. I've moved on to the contempt stage of a broken relationship. You know, the, the old, uh, the old line that, uh, for a lot of psychologists and family therapists, the, the number one sign that a divorce is uh, inevitable is the feeling of contempt among one or both of the partners. And uh, I'm, I'm fully there in the contempt. You know, anyone who looked at the last four years and said, this is, this is the pathway to the future that I want is not someone that I think is, is not something I want in my life. Wow. I'm fortunate in that I live in, in California, in the Bay Area, so I don't encounter too many of those. I've been very fortunate in that my family is not like that. But yeah, I, I think that we, this is in many ways the indication of a much greater challenge to the, 
to the ongoing legitimacy of the United States of America. I mean, there, there was that kind of, of weak but present hope that we would see repudiation and actually demonstrate that, yeah, there is an America that's worth fighting for. But it's really hard to make that argument now. It's really hard. And yeah, I, I, yeah. I, one thing I, I put out on Twitter the day after the election was, we get the future we deserve. And that's the direction we're headed. We're certainly no closer now than we were before the election to resolving the fundamental underlying problem, right? Which is just the deep, seemingly irreversible polarization right. between the red states and the blue states or between the, you know, the Urban red and countryside and the blue cities, right. right? And that no matter what leadership we get, it seems like exactly half of the population is so deeply resentful that they're on the edge of taking up arms, right? So... Not only does our political system seem to be unable to resolve that situation, it's starting to feel like it's almost built to perpetuate that that situation. It is. And <laughs> no, I mean, yeah. it is. If you look at the, the nature of the Electoral College and just the way it's so much of, well, heck, just the, the size of the House of Representatives, it was it was stu it stuck at where it was 100 years ago, roughly. It hasn't grown in, in, as populations in different states have grown should have more than twice, you know, twice the number of congresspeople from California than we have, simply if we, if we keep the same balance that we had 100 years ago. And, you know, we have a strong, our system is strongly preference towards small states and rural areas. And right now, the, the, for a variety of, I think, arguably technological reasons, we have, uh, an incredible split, cultural split between the rural and the urban areas. And I say technological reasons because I think that social media has been the, the burr under the saddle, it has been the, the element that has, been, that has fundamentally transformed the nature of politics in the United States and more likely globally. And, we, and made it even more intractable? Yes, makes it more intractable, makes it... Um, makes it easier to find things that you agree with than to find things that make you think. And that that's not a partisan thing. That That's, I think, true across the spectrum. But where, you, where we sit now, we have one side of a partisan divide that seems to be, that seems to have embraced conspiracy theory, embraced anti-science, and embraced a belief that not only is the other side wrong, the other side is fully and entirely illegitimate and evil. I mean, there's a difference between thinking someone is wrong and thinking someone is evil. And you look at the, the QAnon pages, you look at the, the folks, some of the folks who just been elected to Congress, and they are very clear that they see Democrats as evil and not simply wrong. And it's easier to organize around that viewpoint and to create a self-reinforcing culture thanks to social media. Yes. Now, you know, I know you and I have both been on the internet since, you know, since we were young. I think you, you'd agree with me in saying that one of the, one of the things that we looked forward to in the early, in the early days of the internet, the early days of internet culture was the recognition that the internet gives voice to everyone. That suddenly marginalized communities who felt isolated and, and oppressed at home, 
could could speak up and find people, find others around the world who believed like them, who lived like them, and could create these new communities for the for the marginalized. And we kind of forgot that some groups are marginalized for a reason. That there's some groups that kind of need to be oppressed. We don't need to have neo-Nazi voices. But the same technologies that made it possible for uh, transgender communities around the world, for LGBTQ communities around the world more generally, also make it possible for neo-Nazi and white supremacist and nationalist groups around the world to come together. But that, we were better off when they were more fragmented. We were. At the same time, I would not sacrifice the freedoms that, that have been gained by the LGBTQ and a variety of other groups It's uh, in to have prevented the neo-Nazis and such from organizing. But we got to recognize that there was a cost to, the, yeah. to these technologies of freedom. So I don't know, Jamie, if you had a chance to listen to my most recent two episodes, but I sp spent probably 16,000 words in an hour and a half um, going through a bunch of different scenarios and taking my cue from people like you, scenario planners and futurists, and trying to lay out some potential scenarios for after the election. The first one is one I think that we're thankfully going to avert, and that was what I called Trumpocracy, okay. basically just a continuation. The third one was called the New New Deal. And that was a scenario where Biden won the White House and Democrats won the Senate. And there was now space for something like um, unified government and movement forward on, on government programs and maybe even good government reforms, like things we desperately need to do, like abolishing the Electoral College, mm -hmm. uh, uh, restoring the Voting Rights Act, you know, uh, overturning Citizens United, things that are gumming up our democratic system and things that now will be nearly impossible. Right. Um, so that's not the scenario we ended up with. My second scenario was the one that I think we're getting, and that's, I called it Biden Our Time. A little bit of a pun there. All right. And it's one where Biden wins narrowly in the uh, presidential race, but Republicans hold on to the Senate. And that's exactly what we're getting. And in that case, it felt to me like the most we could hope for would be to put an end to the pandemic and maybe get the economy back on its feet because that's those are things everyone wants. And I felt like that was probably the most likely outcome. And it turns out I was right. Yep. But at the same time, it felt like it felt like there was still some hope that maybe maybe scenario three, the new New Deal was genuinely possible. So I'm feeling this mix of gratitude and disappointment. So should I just suck it up and be glad that Biden won or should I still be disappointed that we didn't get this unified government scenario that felt more promising just a week ago. Was I being super naive? Naive? Yeah. Yeah, actually, yes. Because um, <laughs> I think I was as okay. well. I was as well. The fact that we had 68 plus million people vote for four more years of what we just had, that is such a an overwhelming indicator of fundamental problems within this nation state. And if we had recognized the existence of this Trumpist polity this large, uh, I don't think we would have even considered the possibility of taking the Senate. Now, if you want to get a little bit of hope, well, maybe we get to take the Senate in 2022. Well, cross your fingers. But I think you're right with this scenario with one big caveat. And that is... I think we're we're going to be 
seeing a period in the pandemic that is beyond anything that we've experienced so far. I just look at those those numbers of new infections, 100,000, 120,000 the other day. We're hitting 100,000 plus every day now. And realizing that means in a couple of weeks, you know, around Thanksgiving in the U.S., that we start seeing the infections take hold. The period between Thanksgiving and Christmas in the United States is very likely going to be an incredibly dark period. Family members will die all around the country. If people decide to get together for Thanksgiving, that makes it all the worse. I'm thinking about this period leading up to the inauguration of just everything falling apart with, with regards to the pandemic. This is what Biden has in store for him. It's not just trying to recover from what Trump has done. It's trying to recover from the aftermath of what Trump has done. The, the legacy forces that no Trump decision today could reverse. That no presidential decision today could reverse. We've committed to probably at least 50,000 more deaths. Maybe. I mean, it's really hard to estimate because in many, in some cases, the actual death rate seems to be declining and there's some real promising treatments out there. But at the same time, the, let's call it another several hundred thousand people suffering, at least several hundred thousand. Maybe we're looking at a million more people being infected in the United States. I mean, I, I don't, it's hard to really get a, wrap your mind around the numbers that we may, may be seeing very soon. And, well, and also it feels like we're in for a fundamental political clash over the measures everyone knows are necessary, but the measures that 50% of the population will resist the death. A lockdown will be necessary, yes. and yet we seem to have drawn the battle lines over that. So we won't be getting a lockdown in the places we need it most. Right. And if the the fatalities, or at least the serious infections and illnesses, hit so hard in those places, how will they respond? One legitimate fear that I have is that it will be seen as, you know, from the QAnon conspiracy perspective of this was done to us. Because we voted for Trump and not Biden, this is the Democrats getting their revenge and infecting us. That's ridiculous. Can you say that it, that kind of belief wouldn't happen? Uh, no, unfortunately, I can't. It's chilling to even entertain that idea, but sadly plausible. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, I hadn't even thought through this, this scenario you're laying out where not only is Biden in a somewhat handicapped position having to deal with McConnell but the overall economic and public health situation is even more dire than what Biden and Obama faced coming into office in 2008. Yes. And that the Biden administration will be completely wrapped up for the maybe the first half year at least, just trying to save people's lives, prevent an even worse pandemic, and maybe if we're lucky, start to get the economy running again. But that that's going to be a full-time obsession. Right. Plus trying to reverse so many of the cruel policies that the Trump administration put, put, put in around, around immigration, for example. As horrible as it is to say, those things feel like nice to have things now. Yes, uh, set free, the kids are still in cages on the border, right. of course. But at this point, it feels like 
we would just be lucky <laughs> to start to get a handle on the pandemic. Right. And that in itself is going to be a political miracle. And, I, and the more that I think about it, the more I think it's likely that there will be a significant subset of the population that will take all of the ongoing problems that the Biden administration will have for things that are out completely outside of its control. We'll take those as being indicators of a larger forces at work that are directly attacking parts of the American American populace. The QAnon syndrome may be even stronger in 2021 than it was in 2020 because now they don't have to answer the question of why hasn't Trump actually done anything that Q said he was going to do. Now it's basically unrestrained id because there's no no way to show that actually you know, he, this person this or this team of people claiming to be Q, you know, they've been lying to you because it's now just, it's this ongoing knife fight with the deep state. Well, if we're going to talk about that kind of insanity, we might as well touch on a, a scenario that I hadn't brought up. But what about the much nearer term? I mean, we could find out as soon as tonight or this weekend that, um, well, the, new, the major news organizations could decide to go ahead and call the election for Biden. I've been worrying about what happens right after that. We haven't seen, thankfully, we haven't seen much violence this week, neither at the polls themselves nor at the ballot counting locations. There have been minor skirmishes. There hasn't been the kind of utter civil meltdown that some people feared, partly because while Trump has certainly spouted lies all week long, he hasn't called for the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and the Boogaloo people to mobilize the way some people feared he would. But I'm still worried about what might happen when those 68 million people find out that their dear leader has not been reelected. <sighs> well, you know, it, maybe maybe Donald himself hasn't come out and, and said, uh, you know, stop standing by and now act to the uh, to the brown shirts. But I don't know. Did you see Steve Bannon? The interview with Steve Bannon just yesterday where he called explicitly for a violent uprising. I didn't see it. Is that why he's getting banned on Twitter today? Yes, it is. Okay. Um, you had uh, Newt Gingrich calling for the uh, for Republican legisl state legislatures to to reject Democratic electors and put put in Republican electors, no matter what this, the states voted for. These are not marginal voices. These are people with some level of institutional legitimacy, or at least historically in the case of Gingrich. So there's still the possibility in this interregnum between now and January 20th for all sorts of shenanigans and hijinks. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I actually, as you say that, I realize I've been using the term shenanigans, hijinks myself, and that's just way, that's almost cruelly understated. That, yeah, it's, it's trivializing it's, it. Yeah. It is. It is. And these are not shenanigans. These are attempted coups. These are violence, violence against democracy. My gut is that it's, it's unlikely that it's going to get big enough to pose a real threat to the, the nation state. But it's something, as, we've, as with so many of these scenarios, you can't rule it out. Not at this point in our history. Mm -hmm. we, you, you said something earlier that just really resonates, that we're in a, in a period where norms are being, are being rejected. And what we've discovered under Trump is that so much of our 
state apparatus, apparatus. So much of how our government operates has been based on essentially the gentleman's agreement not to cross the yellow line in the middle of the road. I mean, so much has been based on, you know, we'll, we'll do this because that's the right thing to do. And what we found, what many people have discovered is that, hey, if we ignore this, this norm, nothing happens. We, there's no accountability, no punishment, nothing more than sternly written editorials in the Washington Post. And one of the things that is that it has made me very conscious of is to be looking for where are the other places in our social infrastructure, the where good behavior is based on norms, not on rules. I used the example a moment ago of, you know, driving on the correct side of the yellow line in the middle of the road. And think about that for a second. What we have managed to accomplish in the in this society of allowing people to drive multi-ton death machines at each other at incredible speeds. And, you know, I know that that yellow line, that's what keeps you from hitting me and keeps me from hitting you. No, it's the agreement that we're going to drive correctly. And I just I really worry about what happens to a society when we recognize that norms are unenforceable, that norms have no teeth? Yeah. Well, okay. One grounds for hope is that so far the courts don't seem to have been playing along with Trump's gambits, his legal gambits. Well, of course, their role is to enforce rules, right. actual laws, not norms. But So we'll see what happens as this escalates. You know, you have three Trump appointees on the on the Supreme Court bench now, two of whom are dubiously qualified. I, I think the first guy that I'm saying blanking on his name, the one Gorsuch. Yeah, it, although someone I would disagree with, not inappropriate as a nominee, Kavanaugh, a gentleman who likes beer, and Amy Barrett, who has been a judge for all of three years before this appointment. The interesting question then is, do they see that they owe something to the administration or do they see that now having been given the sinecure, now having, now having the seat, there's nothing that can be done and they owe nothing because what are you going to do about it? And basically flip, oh. flipping the story of ignoring the norms. You know, I, or taking it to the extreme, deciding they can afford to ignore the norms themselves exactly. and institutionalize norm-breaking at the very highest level. Institutionalize norm-breaking, and that's like an oxymoron of the day. Sorry. <laughs> no, but, uh, but think about that. Uh, there is your description of 2020. <laughs> okay. Before we get back to the second part of my interview with Jermaine Cascio, let's take a quick break. If you're getting a lot out of the complex ideas we delve into on this show, there's another podcast I've been listening to that you should definitely check out. It's called Big Brains from the University of Chicago, and it brings you engaging interviews with researchers at UChicago who are doing breakthrough research and reshaping our world. This season, Big Brains has been covering the big issues like the coronavirus and police reform and the election, but they've also featured people working on world-changing technology and science like the quantum internet and the hunt for alien life on exoplanets. Change how you see the world through research and keep up with the latest academic thinking with Big Brains. It's part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. 
Okay, now back to the show. All right, let's step back. Let's assume we survive uh, the interregnum. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't laugh. No, it's okay. Laughter is essential. I wanted to ask you how you think about the future of the progressive movement. What is the left to do now? Because I feel like Biden, to some extent, owes his victory to the mobilization of votes, the get out the vote effort um, that people uh, like Stacey Abrams have led in Georgia. It's it's They did an amazing job. And without the generosity and vision and sort of patience, I think, of the, of the Sanders wing of the Democratic Party, without their forbearance, I don't think Biden could have gotten this far. Uh, and those people are going to feel like um, they're owed something. How do progressive groups handle this moment. So they're going to be tempted to immediately apply tons of pressure to Nancy Pelosi and to Joe Biden and to try to make sure that goals like police reform and a higher minimum wage and instituting some kind of public option in healthcare and taking some kind of action on climate, that those goals actually get pursued. But then centrists are going to be saying, wait a minute, we've got to deal with Mitch McConnell. It's going to be hard enough just trying to get anything through the Senate. Why don't you guys just back off for now? Hey, that punching left has already started. I am seeing this, even with people that I'm friendly with, who are, are saying, who are basically blaming the leftish part of the Democratic Party for the, you know, the, the actually serious decline in numbers in the House of Representatives and the, the inability to capture the Senate, saying that it was because of all this, this identity politics talk or the, you know, defunding police or socialism. All of these really leftish things are why we didn't win more or, or why we lost in the places that we lost. Uh, so that, like I said, the punching left has already started and maybe it's to get a jump on, you know, push, you know, push starting to push back against the pressure from the left before the pressure from the left actually gets going. I would like to see that kind of pressure happening, but in every case, what, you know, what I, you know, whether we're talking about climate or whether we're talking about police reform or myriad other issues that need to be addressed, how do you make it happen in the structure of the current political system? Especially when the tools of enforcement at local levels are largely in the hands of the side that has just lost a lot of power, but still have their clubs and guns. To go back to this question about what the left does now, though, mm -hmm. I mean, on the side of progressive, uh, left-leaning, liberal, democratic, right-thinking people, <laughs> demographically, things should be much more favorable for the left in 20 or 25 years. We have to get from here to there, and we need there to be a progressive left in some form so that <laughs> when demographics finally come around, there's still some leadership, right? We need AOC to be around in 2045. Not to put this all on her, but she's just an example, right? But she's a damn good example. I would vote yeah. for her for a president in a hot second, which I can't yet because she's not old enough. Right. I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm just thinking out loud about how the movement should position itself for the next two to four years such that there is still the potential for movement, for leaders to get things done, to be perceived to be getting things done, to win re-election, to hold on to power so that they, they're still around. Well, um, be the Bolsheviks among the Mensheviks. Um, basically, you're the minority. They're going to be minority within the Democrats for a couple of terms. But as the demographics change, that that position will grow. 
I do believe that as the impacts of climate disruption start to hit us cataclysmically, there will be a rush to embrace policies that once would have been unthinkable. I do think that there will be pressure for policies that have been described as left, but will in fewer years than we might think will be seen as survival. Okay, good point. Switching topics again, mm-hmm. because I want to get through a few more questions with you. It looks at this point as if the pollsters, the poll aggregators, and the election forecasters were wrong again. You know, people like Nate Silver built their reputation on how right they were in 2008 and 2012. and But now, two elections in a row, they've been way off. I mean, they correctly anticipated that Biden would win, but they were wrong about almost everything else. No blue wave. So it feels like polling is broken. And I wonder what relevance that that may have to to folks like yourself, foresight thinkers, political forecasters. If the craft of polling is broken and it is impossible to get an accurate read of what the population is thinking, doesn't that make planning and futurism and and any kind of organizing a, a lot harder? I don't know a single futurist who relies on polls. Okay. Polls are for amateurs. Polls are, what do I see, uh, left-wing astrology right now? But, you know, the, polls are not part of the futurist toolkit hmm. because part of what we're trying to do in this, you know, in this particular field is try to understand the underlying systems at play. Uh, you know, what are the, you know, not so much what what's the transient reaction to a phone call, but what is the relationship between you know, around demographics, around income inequality. How do those kind, those deep forces, how do they lead to certain outcomes? Um, and there's a, there's a range to whether you, you, of how quantitative you want to be about it. I really approach it from a narrative perspective. You know, what what's the story being told? But there's this whole group of people who do Clio dynamics. Have are you familiar with that? Uh, no. Enlighten me. Oh, you need to be. You need to be. These are people who have basically are, are have invented proto psychohistory, Harry Seldon stuff from the Foundation trilogy. Exactly. People have who have developed mathematical formulas that do a actually surprisingly decent job of predicting onsets of violence, of social violence in particular. So it's Clio Dynamics, C L I O. Okay, I just looked it up. Wikipedia calls it a transdisciplinary area of research that integrates cultural evolution, economic history, macro sociology, and the mathematical modeling of historical processes. It treats history as science. It tries to, at least. Um, and some of the, some of what I've seen has been very compelling. There are a number of, of Cleodynamics authors who were writing about the, the 2020 crisis seven or eight years ago. And being really spot on with the the ways in which the crisis would manifest, and one of them was has written that the markers of political dissolution and, and violence in the United States in 2020 are nearly as great as they were uh, in 1860. That comports with m- what I'm seeing for sure. Yeah, right. And that's one of the things that's been so compelling to me about it is that. The conclusions that they've reached from the from the analysis several years ago actually maps very well to what I've observed on my own. You know, the point being that polls are not part of that, and so the failure of of polling 
is it's an inter interesting sociological question. Uh, is this is this because of I don't like the term shy Trump voters because that sort of has this kind of giggly bashful aspect to it, maybe embarrassed or intentionally deceptive, protective, and I think that's what, what we're seeing is a is a development along those lines. People who see a way to protect themselves socially, politically, um, locally by lying. And maybe also a way to screw the liberal coastal elite who run polling organizations. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. Make, you know, make liberals cry. Um, the last time we talked, uh, it was back in April. A lot has happened since then, but the pandemic <laughs> has certainly not gone away. That, that was like eight or nine years ago, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it feels that way. I want to go back to the formulation, to the uh, framework you offered then. You were trying to make sense of the uniquely sort of disorienting nature of the current moment that went beyond mm -hmm. what previous futurists had, had described as volatile, uncertain, um, chaotic, and ambiguous. Complex. 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 Right. That's right. And you came up with this awesome formulation that I really love, which was BANI, which stands for Brittle, Anxious, Nonlinear, and Incomprehensible. And I loved that framework, and it helped me to understand a lot of what happened this year. For example, the way our institutions failed to really come to grips with the pandemic. You know, we had underinvested for so long in public health that when it became a real emergency, big parts of our medical infrastructure were, were so brittle that they were just unable to cope with the emergency. So we had to go into lockdown mode just to keep the hospital system from collapsing. So, okay, the B for brittle sounded quite accurate. I, I felt so personally offended by the I, the incomprehensible part, that I, I feel like I spent a bunch of the year just trying to like beat back the incomprehensibility and to do my own little part to make things more comprehensible. Okay. Thank you. But I, I could do absolutely nothing about the anxiety. Um, my own anxiety only kept going up and up and up. So I feel like overall that, that framework has, has only become more powerful as a lens. I just wondered how you were feeling about it <laughs> at this point. Is Cassandra-esque a, uh, a useful adjective? When Cassandra gets to say, I told you so. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't listen to me. No, I, I, I have noticed with increasing frequency the use of the con of the term brittle and brittleness in the discourse, not just around politics, but everything from machine learning to uh, climate systems. You know, the, the idea that that's just that we're seeing a an explosion of brittle systems seems to resonate right now. You know, certainly what we talked about earlier in terms of norms, norms turned out to be a brittle system. Uh, we, you know, things, something we thought was strong, looked strong, acted strong until it was broken and we saw how quickly and fully it could be shattered. The incomprehensibility aspect, I, I think that one's easy. To, it, it sometimes feels like it's easy to wave it away, but I think one it is a recurring element that we may not articulate it as incomprehensible, but we certainly there's a lot of asking why the hell did that just happen? It makes no sense, and maybe senselessness is a, is a better term than incomprehensible. But I'm not trying to argue with uh, it's it's a great diagnosis. I'm just angry about it, and I've been trying to fix it. But there's no fixing it. 
And you know, I, I jumped on the fact that on your use of chaotic instead of complex for VUCA, it's because what Banny describes is a chaotic system. And one of the elements of a chaotic system is is you know literal unpredictability, incomprehensibility, in other words. What that means to me is that my job is both impossible and guaranteed. Guaranteed because a lot of people are feeling like they have no handle on, a lot of organizations feel like they have no handle on what's going on at present and how that will lead to different futures. And in fact, uh, a lot of the organizations I work with are seeing more, more work now than they have in years, simply because there's just no, we have no ability to, no handles, no mechanisms for grasping onto the, an understanding of the mechanisms at play. But it's also impossible because I'm hit by the same issues as everybody else. Being surprised by things that that appear out of the blue, by you know the the unexpected baseball hitting the back of my head. Right, right. So scholars and journalists and uh, writers can only go so far to help people understand the situation when there are still baseballs raining randomly from the sky. Exactly, and it's um, at a certain level for me, it's uh, fun but in a really twisted definition of fun. Uh, it, it is something that I feel like I can contribute to, you know, contribute to our ability to wrestle with these, to grapple with these. It feels like it's something that I have unusual insights about, and that makes it worth doing. But at the same time, I recognize that I'm, you know, I'm uh, trying to hold back the tide along with everybody else. Well, this is interesting. I, I feel like part of the reason we are in a Banny regime is that Trump and his hordes of flying monkeys have been deliberately spreading misinformation and disinformation and fomenting chaos and inviting disruption. So they're deliberately trying to, to increase the incomprehensibility factor. And that really offends me deeply as a journalist. And I feel like it, it's my duty to fight back against it. And I feel like I've spent a lot of this year trying to do that and trying to make things a little more comprehensible and trying to trying to build a story, trying to create a narrative that helps people get situated better and understand why things are happening the way they're happening. And yes, baseballs still fall from the sky. But I feel like if you can provide that narrative for people, it's that's an important service. It's part of what j journalists do. It's part of what futurists do. And I feel like in some small way, the more we do that, the more we're fighting against the incomprehensibility. And maybe that with Trump now uh, apparently leaving office, you know, we have more room to to fight that battle. And I feel like t we should count today as something of a victory. That's all I'm saying. No, you're right. You're right. Because I feel like what you're saying is important. Well, thank you. And what futurists do is important. And it felt like you were the perfect person to talk to on this day of all days when by the end of the day, <laughs> we'll know who the next president is going to be. And that little element of uncertainty and incomprehensibility and anxiety and will have been removed. And I'm going to try and take that as a win, at least for today. <laughs> no. It, and thank you. Thank you. I, in the work that I do, it's so seductive to get drawn into the sense of senselessness. It's it's easy to think that it's easy to feel that it's nothing but chaos in front of us. 
And so it's actually very useful and very helpful to get the occasional reminder that the work that I do, the work that we do, that attempts to create meaning out of chaos can work, can help, can give some people hope. It can. And I feel like we're doing a little bit of a mutual admiration society <laughs> thing here right now. But it's necessary. This is hard work and it is lonely work. Yeah. And whatever we can do to support each other, I think, is is very important. Um, and so, Jimmy Cascio, thanks again for spending so much time talking with me. And uh, I hope we don't have to do this again too soon. I hope there are no emergencies that make us have another conversation very soon about the future of the country. But whenever we do, it's always enlightening. So thank you. Thank you. I always enjoy these conversations and I look forward with trepidation to the next one. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thanks and good luck and hang in there. Yeah, you too. So that was my conversation with Jermay. Before I sign off, I want to share a few final thoughts about the election and try to wrap up everything we've been talking about in this season of the show. Obviously, it's a huge relief that Biden won. The alternative would have been devastating. But if you're someone who cares about the long-term stability of democracy in the United States, if you're tired of worrying that the culture war between Red America and Blue America will boil over into a civil war, if you'd like politicians to get back to handling the everyday problems of government, then you can't relax now. Ousting Trump was just the first step. As Jemay put it, it was a necessary but not sufficient condition for change. Already we're seeing political organizers and the media turn their attention to the runoffs in Georgia. But even if Democrats were to gain control of the Senate, it still wouldn't finish the job. The real problem, as I see it, is that we spend all our time fighting for control of a system that's built to fail. Our outdated constitutional architecture and our rickety election procedures make us into our own worst enemies. We're a divided and polarized nation, but that in itself shouldn't be a problem there are always fault lines in the electorate. If our politics were functioning normally, we'd be able to end the pandemic, restore the economy, and continue the push for greater equality for people of all ethnicities and identities, while at the same time addressing the grievances of rural, white, less educated voters who feel economically shortchanged and demographically cornered. But politics aren't functioning normally. The Republican Party has discovered an apparently inexhaustible fuel source in the form of white grievance. And that party is able to exercise minority control by exploiting flaws in the way the Constitution apportions power, from the design of Congress to the Electoral College to the redistricting process. The GOP has used this control to hobble government and ensure that real solutions never arrive, the better to stoke anger and resentment. It's government by cynicism, and while it's deplorable in the true sense of the word, it'll remain an effective strategy until the nation gathers the courage to modernize its laws and institutions. We need to expand the judiciary and Congress and reform the Senate to make it less vulnerable to a takeover by a minority. We need to end the filibuster and abandon the Electoral College. We need to put congressional redistricting in the hands of citizen commissions. We need to stop pretending that corporate speech is free speech. We need to restore the Voting Rights Act and reinstitute controls in the former slave states that are still looking for every opportunity to keep black people from voting. These kinds of good government reforms don't usually make for a snazzy or compelling campaign platform. So we don't hear about them much. And the truth is that unless there's a miracle in Georgia, and Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff both win their Senate runoffs in January, 
the Biden administration won't be able to pursue them anyway. But what I argued before the election in our two-part American Reckoning episode is that our politics will remain in a bitter and dangerous deadlock unless we pursue the fundamental changes needed to give everyone a fair chance to win and a valid reason to keep playing the game. And that's just as true now, after the election. Winning the White House was not enough. The real work is still ahead of us. Soonish is written and produced by me, Wade Rausch. Our theme music is by Graham Gordon Ramsey. All of the other music in this episode was from, you guessed it, Title Card Music and Sound in Boston. You can follow Soonish on Twitter at Soonish Podcast. At our website, soonishpodcast.org, you can find the show notes and a transcript for this episode. Soonish is an independent podcast supported in part by you, the listeners. It costs real money to make the show. And donations help to cover things like audio gear, software subscriptions, and music licensing. So if you'd like to help keep the show going, please go to patreon.com slash soonish. And check out the thank you rewards we offer at every level, including the new Soonish coffee mug with the Season 4 logo and motto. Soonish is one of 10 indie podcasts that have banded together to form the Hub & Spoke Audio Collective. And this week, I want to tell you about a wickedly fun episode of the Hub & Spoke show, Iconography, from producer Charles Gustine. Iconography is all about the icons that define our sense of place. And in his newest episode, Charles visits one iconic place that's completely fictional, but at the same time has intimate ties to the real world. I'm talking about Amity Island, the setting for Steven Spielberg's 1975 movie, Jaws. Jaws was more than a phenomenon. It was a cultural juggernaut. Jaws needs no introduction, film historian Peter Biskin wrote in the immediate wake of the summer of Jaws. It is now six months since it was unleashed on an unsuspecting public, and it is still consuming more money than its eponym gobbles down human dinners. In the first ten days of exhibition, it broke the box office of Godfather 1, taking in an estimated $21 million. Audiences see it, return, and return again to be thrilled by the 25-foot shark, the great marine garbage disposal that eats its way through the imaginary beach colony of Amity, Long Island. <clears throat> About that last bit. Amity had indeed been a Long Island enclave in Peter Benchley's novel, and Biskin carries that over to his analysis of the film, which is interesting because, as we will thoroughly dissect in this episode of Iconography, Spielberg makes it fairly clear that Amity Island is in Massachusetts, hanging out off the southern coast within varying distance of Sister Island's Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard. If you want to learn why it really matters that Jaws was shot on Martha's Vineyard and not Long Island, then you need to go to iconographypodcast.com and hear that whole episode. And of course, you can check out all of the other Hub & Spoke shows at hubspokeaudio.org. That's it for this episode. Congratulations on surviving the election, and best wishes for the coming season. I hope you find ways to stay safe and sane in what's likely to be a difficult winter. As always, I'll be back with a new episode of the show. Finish.